comfort idea. I don't understand that at all. Um, why people should presuppose that they should be comfortable in a university class is beyond me. I don't get that at all. Almost everything I've learned, and certainly everything <clears throat> important I've learned, has made me ridiculously uncomfortable. And that's necessary because... Welcome to Runnymede Radio, the official Runnymede Society podcast. We're a place for provocative yet respectful debates and discussions on law, politics, education, and culture in Canada and abroad. My name is Joanna Barron, and I'm honored to be your host. I'm the National Director of the Runnymede Society, which is a nationwide legal membership group dedicated to promoting the ideas and ideals of classical liberalism, the rule of law, and constitutionalism. Our namesake comes from the meadow where King John sealed Magna Carta in 1215. It's a pleasure to be here and to broaden the conversations which have occurred over the last year since Runnymede's founding with this podcast. In the pipeline, I have interviews with academics, judges, lawyers, and writers, often recorded in conjunction with our campus events. If you'd like more information about our campus and law school programming or which other projects we have in store, please visit runnymedesociety.ca or follow me on Twitter at Joe Barron, J-O-B-E-A-R-O-N, and Runnymede at Runnymede Soc, Runnymede S-O-C. It's also my pleasure today to introduce you to Runnymede Radio's first guest, Professor Jordan Peterson. Professor Peterson teaches psychology at the University of Toronto. He's a practicing clinical psychologist who has published over 100 academic papers on personality and the psychology of religion. He's also published Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, which is a book which beautifully weaves together global mythologies, philosophy, religion, and psychology to propose a unique argument about the means in which human beings carve out meaning in the world. He has a popular YouTube channel with over 170,000 subscribers. Of course, Professor Peterson rose to particular prominence here in Canada um, and, and beyond in the fall of 2016 after his public comments about Bill C-16, political correctness, and gender-neutral pronouns. I'm not going to recapitulate those circumstances. I assume that the overwhelming majority of you will be familiar. If not, jump on the Jordan Peterson wiki, wiki for a quick summary. My conversation with Professor Peterson was recorded with him at his home. It starts out with a brief discussion of the debate we held with him at Queen's University, and which you can view on Runnymede's YouTube channel or on Professor Peterson's YouTube channel. I will also link to it on our website where this podcast will be embedded. It then moves on to broader questions about the connection between compelled speech and compelled thought, the political ramifications of language, and campus politics. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Professor Jordan Peterson. Society chapter there's debate um, with Professor Bruce Party. Um, the resolution was be it resolved that persons have the legal right to insist on the gender or gender neutral pronouns of their choosing. Um, and I thought it was a very successful event. What did you think? I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I thought Professor Hardy. Party. Party, sorry. <laughs> Professor Party. Bruce Party. 
Yes, did a, a very credible job of defending the, um, the pro side of the proposition. Yes. I thought it was amusing but not surprising that he had to play devil's advocate in order to do that because nobody who actually held that viewpoint would come and talk to me. But it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's interesting. And we'll post the link to the video of the Queen's Law event in the show notes of this episode. Um, But as we mentioned at the end, the students and I reached out to virtually every professor in the law faculty at Queen's and nobody was willing to come to the table um, and debate uh, Professor Peterson. Why do you think that is? Well, that's that's a good question. I think there are many ways of answering it. One might be, to the degree that people are influenced by postmodern thinking, they don't believe in the utility of debate mm-hmm. uh, because they don't believe that people who represent different power structures, let's say, can resolve their differences through discussion, through dialogue. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep philosophical reason, which I think is not trivial. And just to unpack this a bit, because you talk about postmodernism and the radical left, and what I'm thinking of when you say postmodernism is the notion that because it's been established in the postmodern worldview that morals are relative and there's no moral truth, all you're left with is hierarchies of power. Yeah, and it's instinctively only... correct to side with the weaker side of the power equation. Well, okay, I, I would say it's not instinctively correct precisely. It's mm-hmm. that... Um, I think maybe that's the moral claim that the postmodernists try to make, mm-hmm. but they don't get to make that claim because instinctively correct is a meta narrative, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It it implies that there's an overarching moral structure, and they've already denied themselves that luxury by mm-hmm. insisting that there's nothing outside of language and that all truths are relative, moral truths are relative. So you don't get to play that game if you're a postmodernist. You've already foregone that right. My sense is though that. Post, because postmodernism is nested in Marxism by the explicit statements of its explicit admission or insistence even by its founding thinkers that you default to the Marxist meta narrative when you need to make a political move. And there's a deep political activism that's part and parcel of postmodernism that's essentially Marxist in its orientation. And so Plus, they don't care about coherence because coherence is logical coherence is an element of logic, and they believe that logic is just a structure, a construction that helps validate the current logocentric, phallogocentric power structure. That's the Western power structure, roughly speaking. But I would also say that the professors probably were saw nothing in it that would be of benefit to them, and the potential for substantial harm and the possibility that it would bring me more undesirable, from their perspective, undesirable publicity. Right. So, because what's happened so far, fortunately enough for me, and I'm not attributing this to anything much more than spectacular good fortune on my part, when the SJW types have interacted with me, mostly it's gone very bad for them, at least from the perspective of public response. Mm -hmm. So... All right, so to just circle back to the issue of gender-neutral pronouns, forced gender pronouns, compelled speech. So we agreed, both sides agreed in the debate that currently the law, at least under the Ontario Human Rights Code, um, probably not under the Criminal Code, that's a little bit more complicated and we can discuss that, is that 
misgendering someone or refusing to address somebody by the gender pronoun of their subjective will can constitute discriminatory conduct. It seems to be the law quite clearly under the Ontario Human Rights Code and it's spelled out in the, on the policies of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which is of course not law but guiding principles nonetheless. Um, and one question that came up in the context of this that I think we didn't have a chance to get in deeply enough is just the issue in itself of compelled speech. And it seems like there are at least two serious issues here, um, both of which I'd like you to talk about. The first is um, that your view is that compelled speech is especially pernicious because it harms both the speaker and the listener. In other words, the listener can't rely on a speaker who's being compelled to, whose, whose language is being prescribed by some coercive entity, i.e. the state, because it seems to me that your, your idea about this is it's almost like we're in a movie screen written, um, screen written by the state, and we're, and we're out of reality at that point. Well, so we're out of the process that corrects our interpretation of reality. I mean, right. it's also not only my, what would you say, supposition. The American Supreme Court has already ruled on this, and that's exactly the argument they made. It was harm to the speaker and the listener equally. Yeah. And so, and it was specifically in the case of compelled speech, which, which they came uh, down on very harshly. Now, the, while admitting at the same time that there are restrictions on commercial speech, mm -hmm. right? So, and some of those are compelled. So, for example, uh, people who advertise who who advertise cigarettes on the boxes of the cigarettes, for example, have to put certain content. But the court distinguished between commercial speech and private speech quite, and that seems to me to be, well, I haven't thought that through completely, but at least on the face of it, that seems to be a useful, but also very commonly used distinction. Yeah. Well, and so that leads into the second point, uh, the related point about compelled speech is that in terms of gender, it's particularly fundamental because gender is a fundamental category by which human beings perceive the world. I think infants start to recognize gender around eight months, something so like they, that. They actually recognize sex. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into that. And by sex, you mean for 95% of the population, you it's determine... 99.7%. Whatever. Uh, the, the overwhelming majority, we yeah. do perceive gender or sex based on biological characteristics, how, many, yeah. how somebody talks, how they present themselves, how they're perceived. The yeah, proposition on the, on the gender binary pronoun side is asking us to fundamentally reorganize that and address somebody by the pronouns of their choosing rather than our sort of perception of the world. And that seems to me to be really fundamental and going to something fundamental about human perception. Yeah, well, there, that's part of the problem. The distinction between compelled speech and compelled thought is by no means clear. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, is that you can't easily compel someone to perceive or think a certain way. But I do believe that that is being attempted and it's being attempted within the confines of this, of the ideological movement that is requiring this compelled speech. I see this part and parcel of the attempts, and, and this isn't, I don't believe this is just my misperception. There are plenty of attempts being made by the same people, roughly speaking, to enforce unconscious bias retraining on people, even though 
the science by no means justifies that, even by the admissions of the people who invented the And by test. that you mean the science doesn't justify that people have unconscious bias? Or they don't, the it doesn't justify... It doesn't justify what the unconscious bias signifies. I mean, the tests have a variety of problems, um, one of which is that they're not particularly reliable. So if you give the person the implicit association test more than once, it produces quite widely varying responses. And that's a fatal error for a diagnostic test. And second, the link between the so-called unconscious biases and overt behavior, which is a validity issue. It's like, okay, I measure your reaction time to to a certain set of categories, roughly that's what's happening with the implicit association test, in order for me to claim that that's measuring something that's of import and so should be acted against, I should have to be, I should, I, sh I have to demonstrate a connection between the results of that test and your behavior in a variety of situations that would be uh, agreed upon by, say, scientific peer reviewers to indicate actual discrimination. The evidence for that is very weak. Mm -hmm. And so, Basically, these tests are being used as clinical diagnostic instruments, even though it would be unethical for clinicians, for example, to use them for that purpose because they don't meet criteria, appropriate criteria for validated clinical tests. And the people who are using them aren't clinical psychologists. They don't have the training. They don't understand the psychometrics. And worse, there's no evidence that these training programs produce a reduction either in unconscious bias or in the behaviors that are associated with discrimination. It's false. The first part of it is quite false, and the second part of it is absolutely false. Okay, so, so. let's get back to the question of uh, the political uses of language. So at the debate, you brought up, I can't remember in which context exactly, the example of Ms., um, yeah. which sort of, there was a push to put it in common parlance in the 70s, and there was certainly a big backlash against it at the time. And um, look, supporters of patriarchy were right to be, to be up in arms over the adoption of Ms., because the goal of Ms. was... The equality of men and women that just in addressing me as Ms. Barron or addressing me, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be privy to my marital status just as right. I well. I don't buy the whole patriarchy argument in the least, and, and the reason. But don't you agree that the adoption of Ms. was related to the equality of the sexes? And you said you find it use, useful. Peripherally. Peripherally. Yeah. The reason that it's like one of the things that the the political types, and this would be the case on the right and the left, people who think politically. I mean, and, and who think primarily in terms of political causation, they're, they're missing the big picture as far as I'm concerned, and the big picture is the pill, period, the end, full stop. So the, the, the political, from my way of thinking, the political upheavals in relationship to equality of women in the 1960s were a consequence of the pill. Now, you could say that there had to be certain fundamental... Okay, but just on the, langu the language yeah. point of Ms., why was the adoption of Ms. not as troublesome to you as non non Well, no one was for forcing it on people. With well, right, the that seems well, to be a substantial, yes. Well, there's two reasons. That's the first one. It's right. like, the second one is, obvious, it, it, it percolated from the bottom up. Right. I mean, whoever, whoever and however this happened, Whoever wanted this and however it happened, they managed to coin a word that that worked. People people picked it up and used it. So it was a small enough adjustment for a large enough reason so that it became part of popular parlance quite rapidly, and and that's what happens in English is that words are tools. That's one way of thinking about them. That's Ludwig Wittgenstein's take on words. It's a profound idea. It's a deep idea. Mm -hmm. 
because the, the alternative viewpoint, which most people hold, is that words are descriptions for things. And that's has its truths but its limitations. But anyways, if you take the tool perspective then, and you assume that people are motivated to use effective and efficient tools, then if someone offers them a new one <clears throat> that works, they're likely to pick it up. And that's how words enter English. There's no legal precedent for the invention of new words and their, their, and their enforcement on a population. And well, just as a counterpoint, and this is yeah. something I'm interested in, and I think in a way it sort of um, drives home your point about how, how words are being proffered in the gender uh, pronoun debate. So in the early days of the state of Israel, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, as you may know, there was an unprecedented implementation of the modern Hebrew language. It hadn't been spoken in common everyday parlance for centuries. It had been used, Jews in synagogues across the world had prayed in Hebrew, but they never sort of spoke Hebrew. But when the Jews got together and said, we're going to live together in the state of Israel, since Jews were scattered across North Africa and the Middle East, as well as all over Europe, of course, as well as the Soviet Union or Russia at the time, um, the only way for the state to work was for everybody to speak the same language. So they decided, okay, we're gonna revive Hebrew. And in many cases, they invented words, took some words from the Bible, took some words from other languages, mostly Yiddish, um, as a function of the fact that the Europeans were the ruling elite in this movement. And there was language police that would drive around, you know, Palestine or walk around Palestine. And if they heard people speaking Arabic or Yiddish, they would, you know, they would censure them for it. Um, and so there is some precedent for language being imposed in a top-down rather than a percolate-up way. But in the case of the state of Israel, of course, there were clear political exigencies. If we want to live together as one people, we've got to get together with language. And I think similarly, in the case of yeah, gender non-binary pronouns, it's also it's also must be political. It's a funny case that one, and I, I don't I don't I'm not able off the top of my head to to like rapidly examine the analogical significance. I mean, one of the major differences there is that there's also religious motivations pushing the, pushing the development of well, the Well, many states. early Zionists were, were actually secular, but still yeah, there was well, some notion of, you know, biblical claim to land. Yes, well, right, exactly. I mean, secular or not, mm -hmm. it, they weren't secular. That's, it's actually not true that right. they were secular. They were partly secular right. because they were still united by their Jewish identity. And mm -hmm. so it's embedded in a religious context, regardless of, of their secular claims. So that makes it importantly different. It's also, it's also, it's a funny one, eh? Because it's, and it would be analogous in some sense, I guess, to the language laws in Quebec, mm -hmm. um, making French at least more uh, significant in terms of its presentation than Than it organically would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, those are not laws I'm very happy about in the Quebec case either, but but I don't, I don't think they're sufficiently, uh, similar, I think they're importantly different enough so that I would hesitate to draw immediate parallels. I mean, the problem with the, with the Israel case is that to discuss that properly would mean that we'd have to cover a tremendous amount of associated territory, mm -hmm. you know, because you could, you could, and, and you, that brings up the issue of what actually makes a state valid and Yeah, no, I don't, it, it's too complicated to, it's too complicated to walk through. I mean, there are problems with the founding doctrine of, 
Israel. You know, the idea is that you can have a religious democracy, for example. It's not self-evident to me that those aren't paradoxical propositions. And, and part of the reason that Israel is continually consumed by paradoxical conflict, I think, is because of that. But, and I would say that the imposition of Hebrew as a, as a language reflects that paradox. But because it's nested inside this broader religious claim, it's so complicated. I don't, I don't think it provides a, uh, I think it's so different that it doesn't provide a useful analogy. And I don't, I hope I'm not weaseling out of the, out of the question by No, uh, I just think the that. analogy is, is that where there's an alternative to the organic evolution of language, yeah. which in every other case except for the modern revival of Hebrew has been the case, um, there's some political imperative. Yeah, well, there is some political imperative in France, too, right. because there are committees there that decide what constitutes an right. acceptable word. And so um, I guess those would be the closest to... to... So then what is, it about, what is it about compelled gender pronouns? That oh, it isn't it... the compelled gender pronouns, as far as I'm concerned. And, yeah. and I think the reason that this caused so much upheaval and trouble and, and got so much publicity is because that's not what it's about. For me, it was the fact that it was gender... I mean, I have my issues with the politicization of gender, and, and I have serious issues with that, but they're separate from, from this particular problem. The problem is, is that I thought this was self-evident when I made the videos, to tell you the truth. It's clear to me that these constructed pronouns, like Z and Zer, which, which are, are really, which, to be clear, the ones that you have take the most issue with. Absolutely. If, if you had a student who was born a woman but identified as a man, you would... You would not object to referring to them with masculine pronouns, even I, if that wasn't their biological birth sex. Well, in all like, yes, I would say that's the case yeah. because I've done that. So yeah. I can just rely on what I have done as a guide to that. Yeah. I mean, it's simpler. I kind of outlined, I had a discussion with a trans woman on, on my YouTube channel, Theron Meyer, who's actually quite an advocate for free speech, um, which is also to say that just because trans activists say they stand for the trans community doesn't mean they do. So just because you are a member of a set doesn't mean that you can speak for all of the members. It's, it's, it's a preposterous proposition. But it's simpler. And so it works. Um, and I, so, okay, well, so anyways, back to, the, back to the issue was, yes, these constructed pronouns, which are new, I thought it was self-evident that they were the constructions of people who are have emerged from the politically correct postmodern radical left. I mean, all you have to do is read about the history of the pronouns to figure that out. It's it's not a mystery, and I'm not speaking their language. I don't agree with anything, virtually anything they they propose. But just to, to toggle perspectives, you yeah. are an educator, and the claim is related to concerns about diversity, inclusion, participation, and we do yeah. know that people of color women, minorities, feel excluded from educational context. Well, we know so that the, some do. Some do. So yes, if the claim but we, don't, is, we certainly don't know that all of them do, and I don't think all of them do. But if so. the claim is this is a way to make us feel more included and to enhance our education... Um, I don't care do what the claim is. I don't buy the claim. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that it's the case. Why not? Well, why would I? I mean, there's every single claim that's made by the people in the political camp philosophical camp that I am not in agreement with, they always make that claim about inclusivity. It's all about inclusivity. Change your language. We'll feel better. Things will work better. It's like, I don't buy that in the least. I don't think the universities are working very well at all. I think they're, they're 
insistence that so-called diversity and equality, which increasingly means equality of outcome, are the values that trump all others, are, is, has been devastating to the universities. And I think the fact that kids are flooding out of the humanities, uh, in particular men, but, but, but in general, the enrollments overall are, are plummeting. And it's because none of this works. None, and it certainly doesn't do what it purports to do. I don't consider that even vaguely a vaguely uh, justifiable claim. So I think almost everything about that claim is wrong, right down to its philosophical fundamentals. Even defining diversity as defined by uh, population, what would you call, the basic claim is, is that unless every single organization manifests precisely the same ethnic, racial, and gender diversity that the general population manifests, then it's corrupt and oppressive by definition. I think that's a, it's an untenable claim because group identity can be endlessly fractionated and the consequence of imposing equality of outcome requirements will be so much worse than the consequences of not oppose, imposing them that there won't even be any comparison. That's already happening. So there's no limit to the number of ways that those claims are, are, are uh, not only false, but, but damaging. So, and people's judgment, the comfort idea, I don't understand that at all. Um, why people should presuppose that they should be comfortable in a university class is beyond me. I don't get that at all. Almost everything I've learned, and certainly everything <clears throat> important I've learned, has made me ridiculously uncomfortable. And that's necessary because the degree to which a statement is informative is proportional to the amount of your previous knowledge structure that it decimates. And, and that's a that's a Piagetian presupposition, but it, it's all it's well, I think it's a, well, I'll leave it at that. It's there's nothing about this that is comfortable. There's nothing about being educated that's comfortable. So yeah, the novelist Lionel Shriver a few months mm -hmm. ago wrote in the New York Times. Um, her growing alarm at the profound energy of young college students to enforce oppressive limits against free speech. Mm -hmm. Like the animus of young, you know, leftists, it used mm -hmm. to be the right Perfect word, that, by the way. Animus. animus yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, and if anybody, I'm sure many of the listeners will have seen the YouTube videos of the protest against you at the University of Toronto or where you spoke. And I haven't seen that type of vitriol. U of T is not a school known for its sort of revolutionary flavor. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen that type of scene ever at the University of Toronto. There were a couple of people there that were, that were, um, Violent. Know, oh, the, the, the two of them in particular that I remember were very, I don't know how to describe them either. They weren't really, they certainly weren't looking at individuals when they looked out at the world. Mm -hmm. They were so ensconced within their, their arrogant presupposition of ideological perfection that they were walking danger zones. And, and those weren't the people, by the way, that were actually highlighted in any of the videos. It was, they were people who were yelling shame. And I think one of them was operating at least part of the time operating the white noise machines. But yeah, they, they weren't the sort of people that you would want to be making important decisions. So unless you were aimed at destructiveness. So, so and, and they, you know, the, the radical left 
types, the, the postmodern types, are always claiming that everything they do is motivated by compassion. It's, first of all, compassion is by no means an untrammeled virtue. I don't know why people ever developed that idea, except that it's, it's an easy default. It's almost indistinguishable from conflict avoidance, so, which, is, which is not a good way of establishing peace. Most of the time, if you want to establish peace with someone, there are horrible things you have to talk through in great detail. And you have to ne negotiate extraordinarily difficult transformations in viewpoint, which are often emotionally demanding for both parties, very emotionally demanding, which is why people won't have the discussions to begin with. So to, to not want to have that sort of discussion is to not want to grow and learn. And I mean, I see this all the time in my clinical practice. I'm always walking through people, walking people through the, the very, very difficult process of of transformation, which almost always involves a descent into chaos before a uh, growth in reintegration. So, and that's just, that's learning. It's a descent into chaos before reintegration. You don't get to the new state without going through the desert. So related to your clinical practice, I just want to raise quickly one aspect, one complicating factor of this debate that people aren't really getting or isn't really being given adequate um, attention, which is that you are a practicing clinical psychologist and in your clinical opinion, or at least in some clinical research that you're aware of, there are clinicians who have politically incorrect opinions, but scientifically validated opinions nonetheless, that young people who um, are in some state of gender confusion... Yeah, that's that, Ken Zucker. ...that that can actually be worsened by using non-binary gender pronouns. Well, I, I don't... I'm, I'm not so much concerned about the confusion being worsened, although I think that that worsens the confusion of young people in general, which is not a good idea, because they're already plenty confused. And... Uh, but that's a, you know, that's a more hypothetical situation. Um, with Zucker, who was fired from Cam H because of because of his, I would say, scientific beliefs, um, with regards to the to transgender kids or kids who are very young who are claiming the opposite gender identity, his policy was let's keep the hormones and the and the surgery at bay until the kids are old enough to make their own decisions. That was one claim. The other claim was if you follow up kids like that, most of them settle into their gender identity at some point before adulthood, although many of them um, recognize their homosexuality, about 80%, if I remember correctly. It's something like that, but far, far larger percentage settle into their biological identity, let's say. And, uh, you know, the argument is being advanced now that not helping a child transition at a very early age is, in fact, a form of abuse. So they're given puberty blocking drugs and that sort of thing, which of course render them sterile. And there are big, there are lawsuits brewing here. You know, in 20 years, there's going to be a very large number of those people who are very, very, very unhappy about what they were enabled to do when they were tiny little children. It's illegal, in fact, in Ontario right now for medical professionals to counsel parents or the child against moving forward with such transformations. That's regarded as conversion therapy or some variant of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Queen's Law Students um, published two responses in their law student newspaper to our event on Monday evening. Um, and I want to read to you one objection from a student named Vlad Krasner um, for your response. 
He says, uh, Professor Peterson proffers a slippery slope argument against gender-neutral pronouns. Similar arguments are posited each time we have a step forward in equality rights. During the gay marriage debate, it was that if people are allowed to marry the same gender, they'll soon be allowed to marry animals. These arguments have failed time and time again because of their hyperbolic nature. The law should be treated as it is and not within some imagined future extreme catastrophe. We are arguing about equality. Equality is reasonable. I just reverse the argument and say, well, the law should also not be imagined within the confines of some future utopia. So obviously exaggeration can take place on both sides of that and does. So I think that the potential positive elements of a law should be should be considered as well as the negative uh, elements insofar as that's possible. Um, so first of all, I don't, you know, generally I don't buy the point that it is only the tactic of the opponents of, say, equality laws who engage in this sort of argument. It's, it's, it's just not the case. Um, besides that, in this situation, we have no idea what the law is because it hasn't been in place long enough to note what it is. And so there's no way of discussing it at all without making some assumptions about what might happen if it moves forward. And that's actually what thinking does. It projects into the future. Now, you call that a slippery slope argument if you assume that one thing is going to lead to another similar thing and that's going to undo the entire mess. And um, obviously there are situations in which that's not an appropriate tack. And logically it's not an appropriate tack, but the idea that that's limited to the side of the opposition is not a tenable idea. So, and he also did used a straw man tactic there. I might might as well point out because he referred to the most absurd objection to the laws enabling homosexual marriage, and that was that people will soon be where, soon be marrying animals. Um, there are all sorts of arguments put forward that were far more reasonable than that. And if a person is really serious about having an discussion about something, they don't start off with a obvious straw man argument of that sort. They take the proposition seriously and say, well, when you transform the legal definition of something as fundamental as marriage, then it's, then you are altering the structure of that, uh, what would we call it, institution. And there are reasonable it is reasonable to ask what the negative consequences might be and unreasonable to say that all the consequences will be positive and none of them will be negative or to insist without evidence that the the positive consequences will outweigh the negatives and so the what would you say it the uh, the conservative conservative argument would be messing with something that fundamental will produce consequences that you do not intend and so you should leave it alone. And you, you, can, you can make a perfectly reasonable case that you can't always rely on that argument because sometimes fundamental things have to be changed. But the idea that marriage is fundamental and that you should change it with caution is reasonable. So we could say, well, the divorce laws were loosened in the late 1960s by Trudeau in Canada. And you could consider that a move forward for people's freedom and even for their equality. But I certainly don't see that that's what's happened. What's happened instead is that, and this is women who have actually borne most of the brunt of this, is that most single family, uh, uh, single parent family, most single parent families are headed by women. Most of those women are in significant financial distress. Um, if a woman gets divorced with children, her 
her socioeconomic status almost invariably falls. So the there's the con and and the other consequence is that marriage itself has has become increasingly rare and restricted more and more to people who are wealthy, and which is which is a very paradoxical proposition from the perspective of people who regard marriage as an oppressive patriarchal institution because it begs the question why the rich would be oppressing themselves. Well, to so, to pivot a little bit, uh, so in terms of the sort of progressive issues of the last few decades, um, abortion and gay marriage were major ones. Now we're seeing the growing clamor for recognition of gender fluid and transsexual identities. Now, in my opinion, the gay marriage argument is basically over. Gay marriage is legal. It's legal in, in the, the U.S. and Canada. There's very little appetite, particularly amongst the you know younger generations. Pretty much the only people demographically who are opposed to legal gay marriage are older people, both in Canada and the U.S. Abortion, on the other hand, doesn't also seem to a, die. You can also make a conservative case for, for gay marriage. It's not very difficult. Well, right. But in so, any event, that argument seems to be over. It does, yes. Um, but the abortion argument doesn't seem to be. It, it doesn't seem to go away. There are young people in Canada and the U.S. that continue to be passionately pro-life, and it's just, it just seems to be going in a cycle. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, in terms of this new debate that we're having right now about gender pronouns and fluid gender identities, is it going to be more structurally like the abortion debate or more like the gay marriage debate? Yeah, well, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I don't see any evidence whatsoever that, that the legislation has actually brought about a fundamental change in the way that people use language. I mean, it's it, it partly because there are ways of stepping outside the debate entirely. You but can, presumably, there'll be a continue to be a political push for it until it is. Well, it, oh, there are consequences unfolding. I mean, one of them is is that the Canadian government is very likely to take any markers of biological sex off all identity documents. Mm -hmm. For example, that's and that will have consequences that that we don't foresee. Like, it actually turns out. This is the sort of thing that, that feminists such as Germaine Greer have been commenting on, at least uh, uh, tangentially. It's going to turn out that it's actually in the best interests of both men and women to have their sex identified quite frequently on such documentation because we won't be able to measure or assess the differential effects of all sorts of policies and economic situations and so forth on men versus women. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's actually information that we probably want to know. I mean, look, Here's something paradoxical. So the National Institute of Health in the United States, the National Institutes of Health in the United States about 30 years ago, yeah, about that, started to insist that, for example, there had to be equal representation of men and women in scientific trials. Okay, so what are you going to do about that? Exactly. Can't identify them. Well, yeah, you can't identify them. So how, how are you going to, and it's not like all medications have the same effect on men and women. I mean, testosterone is the classic example of that, right? So the fact that we're going to lose that distinction is going to produce all sorts of... of and this isn't slippery slope reasoning. I'm, I'm stating that we need that kind of... Info. Even in uh, psychological research, you always measure sex. You always, you always take the sex into account because you have to use it at least as a covariate because men and women happen to be different in important ways, seriously important ways. And um, if you may even do analyses separate for men and women to see if the causal mechanisms that are involved differ, because frequently they do. And so is it going to become illegal to ask for people's gender markers for scientific research? Then what? 
how are you going to deal with that? So it's, uh, well, it's, it's problematic to say the least. And that's, that's part of what's stemming from this insistence that gender is nothing but a subjective construct, which is an absurd proposition. There's, it's, and it's based, it's fully based in a, in a kind of postmodern social constructionism that no, that no one who is reasonably educated takes seriously. I mean, I would say the entire trend in the biological sciences for the last 40 years has been increasing recognition of the degree to which biology plays a important formative role in virtually every human phenomena. That's why the postmodernists have to go after the biologists next. And they will. I mean, they have to. It's, it's a logical necessity given what's already been written into the law which is the social, that was the other thing I objected to in the videos, is that the law has instantiated a social constructionist view of identity into our, into the fundamental base, what fundamental, the foundation of our legal system, not at the constitutional level, but close, close enough at the human rights level. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your comments, Dr. Peterson. So there you have it. Just a quick note uh, about technical audio quality. The quality of our recordings improves going forward. This was the very first podcast that I recorded and I was still learning the ropes. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to learn more about the Runnymede Society, you can visit runnymedesociety.ca where you can donate, link to our social media. Also, please consider subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. Um, and with that, I will see you next time.